BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The job I do as editorial page editor, I feel like at some point you should change that up. Different people should take over and bring a different idea. So uh, for all those reasons, it just seemed like the right time to do it. Hi, everybody. I'm Fran Spielman. My guest this week is Tom McNamee, the wonderful and soon-to-be-retired editorial page editor of our very own Chicago Sun-Times. Tom, thanks for joining us. Say it ain't so. Oh, thanks a lot, Fran. It's great to be here. Why now, as we embark on what would be a groundbreaking partnership with WBEZ, are you choosing to walk away? <laughs> well, first of all, I didn't know the groundbreaking partnership was in the works when I when I decided to retire and I had already announced, but it wouldn't have changed anything. Um, I just got to a point where I feel like I've been doing this for 40 years. I've been, honestly, I've been working for a paycheck since I was a paper boy at the age of 12. And uh, I have children at different places. I, I feel like don't see enough. And I'm 67. And uh, I just feel like, you know, there's another thing too, Fran, which is, in some ways, I feel like it's time for the Sun-Times to have new people, new leaders, different backgrounds from me to sort of take over and see what they can do. The job I do as editorial page editor, I feel like at some point you should change that up. Different people should take over and bring a different idea. So uh, for all those reasons, it just seemed like the right time to do it. Is it anything related to the pandemic and the soul searching you did? Yeah, you know, a little bit. I mean, a little bit. You're at home all the time. You and and first of all, I really, really, really miss the newsroom. I, you know, I have to tell you, part of the reason I got in this business was just sort of this romantic notion of of a newspaper in the newsroom and, and people running around in trench coats, you know, with their notebooks and stuff. And um, the idea of working from home for the next year or so, which I think is the reality, uh, I've done that enough and I've been home doing that enough. Um, so a little bit of that. I just feel life is short and, and I should do something else. Let's talk about your background and your extraordinary career and what brought you to this point. You grew up on the Southwest side, one of 12 children. A yeah. real life, cheaper by the dozen story. What was it like in a household like that? How did you survive? 
Uh, you know, you don't know, you don't know that you're in a crazy situation because that's the only thing you know. People always ask you, what's it like to grow up one of 12 kids? And I say, I don't know. I never had any other experiences. You don't know when you're 12 years old that it's, it's a strange thing. It's only later you look back and say, well, that was crazy. And it really was a very, very crowded house. Um, we first lived in the St. Bede's Parish and you know in a space about as big as some apartments there was 13 of us and then my folks moved to a house in st thomas moore which is 79th and western and a little bit bigger but it's still you know i always had three brothers living with me in the same bedroom um as a kid four had, kids in the same bedroom well yeah usually i always had at least two brothers and usually three in the same bedroom there are four of us in any any bedroom in and bunk so, you beds know, i hope well, you know, friend, one of the things that happens is, you know, as a kid, I like to write. I wasn't one of those compulsive, but all the nuns always said, you know, you should think about writing for a living, or my mother would say that. And, you know, I wasn't one of those kids that kept a diary because with 11 brothers and sister, there was no privacy. And trying to find a place to write was really weird. I would go down into the basement uh, next to the laundry table and pull the shower curtain, and then that's where I would do my work trying to find my own space. And that's what you do in a big family. You find your own space. And the other thing I'll, I'll babble it on, but the other thing is we were a family of, of compulsive readers. My mom and dad were both um, extremely well-read people who just adored a good book. Um, and my mother would be up at six o'clock in the morning just to read for an hour before everybody else woke up. And it was always like that. And we all took that with us. And when you read all the time, you sort of take yourself out of your physical house and you go to, go to a different place. That's an old story. You know, a tree grows in Brooklyn. She talks about that, but it's true. Your dad was Irish Catholic from Canaryville. He got a football scholarship to college, but he ultimately became a realtor, even though you say he was a terrific storyteller and should have been a reporter. Why didn't, now, he, why didn't he become one? Was it the money? It was, it was a depression and the war. My dad was a classic example of, you know, they call him the greatest generation. Yeah. My dad was not one to inflate himself. He would not have used that phrase. But he, he was the son of, of, a, of a, an Irish immigrant woman who had come over when she was 16 years old. And she used to clean houses. And the way she paid for tuition for her kids was to clean the convent across the street on weekends, and then they'd give her free tuition. And, and, and her, my dad's father died very young, so he was raised by a single mother and his older sisters, where he was sort of the prince of the family, and he was a very bright guy. He went to Mount Carmel, got a football scholarship, played in the, uh, on the uh, Mount Carmel team that won the Catholic League Championship at a Soldier Field. Um, and then, you know, I, he was always a wonderful storyteller. And I, and I really do believe that's the gift he gave me. I like to tell stories. I just do it in print. And my dad could tell a great story, which I kind of think very stereotypically, Fran is kind of an, uh, kind of an Irish thing. Um, so he would do that. And, but, you know, then he came out of college. He went to little, uh, little school in um, Davenport, Iowa. Um, what's it called? I'm blanking on their name now. And... Um, and when you get out, of, he went to the, you know, and then he served in the military. When he got back, he didn't have to play football to pay tuition. He had the GI Bill. But at that point, everybody getting out, they were just so sick of depression, so sick of the war, so sick of poverty. They didn't think about careers in the same way 
you or I would. They thought about making a living and having a family and having a settled life. So he got a job in sales. I found out later when I was in my 40s, going through some old scrapbook, that my dad had applied to be a sports writer at, a, at the uh, Des Moines Register, I believe it was. When he was about 21, he had applied for a job as a sports writer. And uh, I was shocked to find out he had done that. But he didn't get the job? Well, you know, he's like 21. He had no experience, right? So oh. he, he was shooting high for, for the times. Your mom was not Irish Catholic. She converted. But you say that it always seemed to you that she was living on the southwest side under protest, which you said was a good thing for you as the kids. How is that? I, I know that I don't want to I don't want to make it sound like a negative. But yeah, my mom grew up in all these small towns downstate like Decatur. She grew up in uh, Clayton, right outside of St. Louis. She grew up in Edwardsville. That's where her folks had a farm, I think, or a great great grandparents and she was always stuck in the farm because her dad was a professional violinist that's what he did for a living in fact he used to play uh used to put together the band for bob hope and bob hope came through on vaudeville before he was famous so my mom grew up in this very different world not irish not catholic she marries this irish catholic guy ends up in the southwest side and she just never felt she belonged. Do you know what I mean? Uh, St. Patrick's Day was not her day. Um, she had a different sort of way of looking at things. And um, and I think that kind of, and all my brothers and sisters, I think we all sort of picked up on this idea that the world was a bigger place than 79th and Western, or, or Tommy Moore, or St. B's. I think we all have picked up on this idea that there's a whole different way of looking at life beyond the neighborhood. Um, and you went to Catholic grammar schools and then the public high school, Bogan, which was the last all white high school in the city. And you say your parents, tr uh, there were parents who tried to keep it that way, not yours. But you lived in a racist neighborhood and you had to choose. So what did you choose? You, ch you choose not to be a racist. And, and more than that, because I don't think most people I grew up with chose to be racist at all. But you have to choose how are you going to look at that issue and how are you going to be? And I, I chose to embrace the fact that there are all kinds of people out there and everybody's, for the most part, just trying to make, trying to make their way, you know, whatever their color, whatever their background. I'll tell you a quick story. When um, in the neighborhood I grew up in, <clears throat> the Wrightwood Improvement Association was very worried about black folks moving in from the coming across Damon and then really coming across Western Avenue. And that was the constant conversation at their meetings. My dad went to one of these meetings, although he very seldom did things like that. And um, he actually gave a little speech and his little speech was, which is the speech we probably heard every day at home. He said, listen, I know we're all worried about our property values. I, all, I know we're all worried about crime. I know we all like the community we're in and we're afraid of the change, he said. But while we all talk about this, can we just remember one thing, which is that the people who, are, who want to move in, the black people who want to move in, these are not people out to do harm to anybody. These are people just like us who want a better school for the kids, who want a safer block to live on than the one they live on. And while this is really going to be a, a challenge, and I know we all feel threatened, can we just remember that these are people just like us trying to improve their lives? And you would have thought my dad had set off a bomb. Mm -hmm. I wow. mean, it, it was just, he was booed down. People turned away from him. Um, 
and it's a long story. But about a week later, we got a call. We got a my mother got a visit from the city inspector's office. They wanted to inspect our house. Oh no! Yeah, yeah, they want to inspect our house, and um, and my mother said, "Well, why?" They said, "Well, you know, we just got some no." And you know, to be honest, Fran, in a house with twelve kids, you're going to find some code violations. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> so my mother said, "Stay there on the front porch," and she called my father at work, and my father said, "I think I know what this is about." So my dad called Matt Danaher. I don't know if you remember who he was. Sure. But he, he was a top eight to Mayor Richard J. Daly back in the 60s. Patronage chief, wasn't he? Pardon me? Wasn't he the patronage chief? Yes, when he was. he had He's such patron- things? He, got a, he had an elected position at some point, and he fell out of favor with Daly for various reasons we could get into. But at that time, he was sort of like a surrogate son to Richard J. Daly. He was the patronage chief. And my dad and my dad knew him because they played poker on Friday nights. My dad grew up, you know, my dad grew up in Canaryville. And he said, Matt, there's a building inspector on my front porch. Can you do something about this? And Matt says, yeah, just tell your wife to just keep him on the front porch. And the guy, half an hour later, a car pulls up to our house and a guy gets out, walks up to the building inspector and they have a little conversation and they leave. And that's that. <laughs> That's and that, that was that. That's how you took care of things in the old days. Absolutely. Even parking tickets, I imagine. So you found your calling when you went to Northern Illinois and, and that had a great student newspaper. And then you became a Sun-Times intern. And it was the summer of 82. The big story was the Tylenol murders. What do you remember about that? Uh, well, first of all, I did have a little in the middle. I went to suburban trip for four years and went to grad school. Um, but yeah, then I ended up at the Chicago Sun-Times. It was the summer of 82 and I was an intern. And it was just, you know, to that, that story has sort of stayed with me all these years. If you remember what happened was a bunch of people started dropping dead. A, uh, a flight attendant, a store clerks, a number of people stopped dropping dead and it was very scary odd and it was a city news bureau reporter covering these various unexplained yes. deaths who saw yeah. the connection he, he 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 noticed that in the reports people had just been taking tylenol shortly before they died and he he made that connection a city news reporter um i think it was rooney but i'm not sure but um Rooney's so kid or rooney it was what's his name um i don't remember friend Okay. Yeah, but, well, Ed Rooney, was it Ed or was it his? No, it was his son. It was son. his son. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And um, so anyway, so the telling of murders, what it was going on, it was some strange guy he had been putting cyanide into Tylenol capsules, those which they no longer make because of this Tylenol scare. And people had been buying them and he put them back on store shelves. People bought them and people died. Um, and it was a big, big story, as you can imagine, because everybody takes Tylenol. It was a classic newspaper story, and it really had legs because you couldn't never want, you always had to wonder where the next tainted bottle of Tylenol was. So they kind of had a, um, it, I can tell, we'll talk about this all day, but they had like a suspect of the week for a while. They'd haul people in and interview them, they being the cops. Uh, Ty Fainer was in charge of this task I force. remember. And they bring people in and interview them, and um, and I can tell you a very. I'll try to make it quick if if you like, but I can tell you an interesting story about that. So the city that said I was just some kid working a night shift as an intern, and the paper sent me out to, to interview the latest suspect of the week, 
a guy named Roger Arnold, who had worked on a loading dock at a grocery store with the father of one of the victims. And for some reason, his name had been dropped on the police. And they brought him in and questioned him for a couple of, for, I think, like two days. And then they released him. My job was to go to his house near Midway Airport interview him. And um, so I drove down there in the in the afternoon, and he wouldn't talk to anybody. He said he had talked to his lawyer, and I had nothing to do. So, well, most of the reporters left. I just sat in my car, and he came walking out of his house later. And I said, Roger, where are you going? He said, oh, I'm going to go see my lawyer. So I said, well, get in. I'll give you a ride. He was going to take a bus. And on the way downtown, up the Stevenson Expressway, I took up my notebook and I interviewed him in rush hour traffic, you know, Roger. While driving? While I was driving on the Stevenson Expressway. Uh Fortunately, it was rush hour, so we were going slow. And I asked him everything about his life, why they thought, why his name got dropped with the cops. And he was just kind of a marginal figure. And... um, and behind me in my rearview mirror were two TV trucks following me. So the last thing I said to Raj when I dropped him off at his, uh, his lawyer's office, I think it was Tom Breen, I said, Roger, do me a favor. Don't talk to those people behind me. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, okay. And he was good to his word. He didn't say a word. So I wrote a little story about Roger, nothing, just about, you know, who he was, how he spent his life. Two or three weeks later, or some maybe it was a month or two, I don't remember. Roger Arnold went out on to, to outside a, a, a. Do you remember this? Roger Arnold went outside of a tavern on Lincoln Avenue, waited for a guy who to come out, and shot him dead. Roger Arnold, was, uh, Roger Arnold was furious that he'd been connected to the Tylenol case, and he thought this particular bartender at this bar had been the person who dropped his name with the police. And he was so furious, he took a gun, went up oh to the tavern, God. Wow. went out to the tavern and shot him. Now, making it even sadder, he didn't even shoot the guy he intended to shoot. He was mistaken identity. Oh. He ended up shooting a middle-aged guy who lived in a suburb and had several daughters and was just the sweetest guy in the world. So, I mean, it's just one tragedy after another. Ten years go by, and on the anniversary of the Tylenol murders, this has nagged at me all my life because I think what we do in our job has consequences beyond what we sometimes understand. And I always wondered to what extent my little story contributed to Roger Arnold's derangement to the point Mm. where, you know what I mean? Did you feel guilty? Yes. I, I, I wonder if I should feel guilty. And yes, I did. I did. Because I, looking back now, I don't think that story had to be written. Roger Arnold had been charged with nothing. Um, and I look back and I think, where does the news start and where does the responsibility to a person's mental health and privacy let off, right? And I looked back on that story and wondered why I even bothered to write it. Of course, I was an intern. I did what I was told. Uh, but as an editor, Fran, I've thought about that many times when I've assigned or not assigned stories. Is this responsible in that way? But anyway, so 10 years later, I called Roger and I went down to, I, to, I think it was Pontiac State Prison, and I interviewed him. I interviewed Roger in prison. I also later interviewed later the guy who probably is a Tylenol killer. I interviewed him at a federal James pen. Lewis. Yeah, I interviewed him in, in uh, Danbury, Connecticut later. But I interviewed Roger first, and the first question I had him was, I asked him was, did my little story have anything to do with you shooting that guy in Lincoln Avenue? And um, 
And Roger instantly said, oh, no, no, it wasn't you. It was the TV stuff. And I said, why? Because I, he said, because it, it was on TV. It was on TV. And I kept seeing my face on TV. And it drove me crazy. And I went to work on the loading dock. And people kept calling me the Tylenol kid. And they said, uh. Never, and then they'd point up at the TV at the bar. And they said, there you are, the Tylenol kid. And he said, and I just couldn't take it. He let you off the hook, though, thank goodness. Pardon me? He let you off the hook. Yeah, well, yeah, I wasn't because I even in that moment, my instinct was that Roger was letting me off the hook. I didn't really believe that it wasn't the sum total of all the news coverage. But I was sitting there and there was something about Roger Arnold who was not a bad guy. And I think in that moment, he just he just his gut was to let me off the hook. Wow. So you became the North Shore magazine editor for three years. That didn't work out too well. And then Sunday editor at the Sun-Times for your longtime friend and mine, Don Hainer. Yeah. Throughout your Sun-Times career, you've done a ton of stories. You've traveled all over the place. You've interviewed killers in prison like this guy that you just talked about. Uh, You covered Cardinal Bernadine's heroic battle with cancer you even got called a racist and forced our entire staff to undergo sensitivity training (laughs) by comparing gangbangers to raccoons in a column i believe what did you learn from that humbling experience you know um yeah i for years I, i couldn't even talk about that without flinching because it was so upsetting to me uh um, what happened was I wrote a little story about people having a problem with the raccoons, the critters, the creatures that were burrowing into their houses and into their attics. And about, the thing about raccoons is they're very, very blasé. That you know, and, and I mentioned, I said they, something about walking down the street like a gangbanger. And that was seen as racist remark. And what I didn't understand now, there's... Is, and I understand why now that was true for, for a lot of people. Raccoon is coon. Coon is a pejorative word for black people historically, and it's a horribly offensive thing to say. Now, I had no idea. I was culturally blind. But I was also furious because I knew in my heart that I had, frankly, going back to what we talked about before, when you grow up in my neighborhood, you have to make a choice. And I had made a conscious choice to to resist any racist impulses, to try to rise above it, be a better person. And I also knew that in Chicago to be labeled a racist is about as bad as you can have it if you're in the news business. So um, so it really, really uh, shook me at the time. The city council actually took a vote condemning me in the story. And I also remember it was Don Hainer, by the way, who just mentioned, who gave me the best advice at that time. Because I was just like two minutes from quitting. I just was really, really feeling terrible. Don said, pulled me aside one day and said, Mac, me, here's the thing. This too shall, shall pass. pass. <laughs> and it was, you know, and, and when you're only 32 years old or whatever it was, that's great advice, you know, because you think everything's forever. And when you get older, you realize things do pass, you know, and you live a career that shows you're not what they said. But in that moment, man, I needed to hear those words. Um, and it was frustrating to me also, Fran, because I was told not to talk about it. For instance, right now, Eric Zorn's having an issue similar to this. And Eric's response to being called a bigot is to go right at it and argue the point. And I respect and admire that for him. But I was told not to, and it frustrated me. 
But I'll tell you where I really had a change of heart, where I really started to understand things. Um, I was listening to Eddie Schwartz, of all people, you know, and he, Eddie Schwartz, he was a nighttime overnight WGN radio host, famous in his day. And in Eddie IMG, knew me. where I worked. I know him. Yeah. And Eddie knew I me knew a little him. bit. I'd, I'd been on a show pushing our Chicago Streetwise book and stuff. And he just said flat out, this guy's not a racist. I don't know where this is coming from. And he said, but, you know, there is a such thing called cultural blindness. Eddie Schwartz, of all people, was the person who used that phrase first for me. And I thought to myself as I'm sitting there in the dark in a chair feeling bad for myself, he goes, yeah, that I have cultural blindness. I couldn't see it the way a black person could, right? It wasn't part of my experience to equate a raccoon with the pejorative in the same way that a black person could. And you know, for all of the po po political exploitation on the part of people like Rich Daly and others who were just using this for their own purposes, I did cross a line that I didn't understand. There was a cultural blindness on my part. And I guess what I'm saying is what I took away from that is I have to be humble. I have to understand that I can make, it's not the things you think are gonna get you in trouble that get you in trouble. It's the things you never see coming. And um, and that's what I took away from it. And honestly, that's one reason I'm one of these guys who's really big on diversity, uh, it, like on our editorial board, because we all just bring so much different stuff to the table, stuff that nobody else can bring, certainly that I cannot bring and I, I guess if I had to say, what did I take from that whole experience? It's that idea that I have one reality, other people have a different reality. I have to hear and see their reality. I want to talk about two personal tragedies that you've had. One is the death of your brother, a Chicago firefighter killed in the line of duty. Let's yeah. talk about that and the tragedy of that, how it happened and how it shaped you. Oh, let's see. How did that? That was just stunning. Um, you know, I, I, I'll recap for your listeners what happened. This, this was, um, I, 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 I confess I don't remember the exact year. My brother was about 37. I, he, I, he was in his 30s. I guess I was almost 40. And my brother had worked as a Chicago police, or as a police officer out in the suburbs, waiting to become a firefighter, firefighter. And then he got on the list and he became a firefighter. And um, and he was great. He was tops in his class as a cadet uh, in every way. He was in perfect physical shape in a way I hadn't seen him in years, and he was happy as can be. Um, I think he liked the idea of, of putting out fires instead of carrying a gun. Um, he was also the smartest one of the 12 brothers and sisters. I think we'd all agree on that. He was sharp as a tech. So, um, so anyway, on the last day of training, at the academy, um, they had this thing just to kill time where they put this big airbag on the ground, uh, made in Germany, and everybody's supposed to just fall off a balcony and fall into the airbag. And the thing about this is there's no right way to fall off a balcony. There's no right, we don't go head first, back first. The trick is to trust your equipment. That's the point of the lesson, trust your equipment. And my brother was like number 15 or 20 or 30 to go fall into the bag. And clearly too many people have fallen into it just before him. The seams gave out, the air gave out, and my little brother slammed his head into the concrete just below. Um, so um, 
It was just devastating. Nobody in our family had ever been lost. Uh, I, I, I don't know what to say about that, except all I cared about was being there for my family. And um, and I was aware of the, the news coverage, which frankly was fair and and kind. And I got a lot of kindness from the people I worked with. That was, you know, it goes back to this case. We're really good about respecting boundaries among each other. And I think maybe we should be as is thoughtful about respecting boundaries on people who don't work with us. Um, you know, it's funny. I miss them to this day. Yeah, I imagine. My God. Uh, then the loss of your hearing. You have an, an an implant in your ear. You couldn't hear. How did you do your job? Uh, yeah, the hearing issue, which, by the way, is not why I'm retiring. I think it's important to say that because... People who live in the world of disabilities would be very disappointed if I said, oh, I'm, I'm backing off being in the world and being in my job because my hearing's, because I have a hearing problem. That's not the way you go at life. We should go at the way uh, Henry Kaiser, the deaf book editor of the Sun-Times and Daily News went at it, which is just go right back at it, you know? And that's always been my attitude. Sometime in my 40s, I started to lose my hearing. I don't know why. You know, a little bit genetics. A lot of it is just too many rock concerts. And I also worked in a cannery 84 hours a week when I was a kid. And I was really loud. But I started losing my hearing. And then by the time I got into my mid-50s, um, or a little later than that, yeah, late 50s, I couldn't really, I couldn't talk on the phone. You and I would not be having this conversation. And I got to the point where I couldn't talk on the phone. And Kate Grossman one of the best people I've ever worked with would very quietly listen to my voicemail messages and write them down for me. And then I would try to reply often by email. Had it not been for email, I don't know what I would have done. Um, and I got to the point where an editorial board meetings, I would be staring at people's lips, trying to make sure I understood what they said. And later on, when I would see a transcript or listen carefully to a recording, I was really aware of the fact that people were saying stuff that I just totally missed. Wow. Uh, you know, it scared the hell out of me because you know how it is. What if you write a story based on one premise and you totally miss the truth? So um, so I was a little nervous about that. And, and then, um, you know, I had hearing aids and stuff, but they weren't doing the job. So finally, I got a, a what they call cochlear plant, cochlear implant, which is a surgically implanted hearing aid that um, kind of bypasses your middle ear and goes right to your brain. And that has allowed me, Rush Limbaugh had that. And that has allowed me to work again. I can talk on the phone to you right now. I can hear people in meetings. Um, it still limits me. I still can't go to a city club meeting and understand a word anybody is saying. Um, when I was on a panel at the city club uh, about a year ago or so, just before the pandemic, the moderator, Dan Miller, knew I had a hearing issue. I told him. And every time a person in the audience asked a question, he would turn to me and repeat it. It's just because he knew I wasn't hearing a word. Um, so I struggled. But I guess what, I'm, what I would say about that is, you know, there again, it's just one of these, it's like a third world, it's like a first world problem. You know, it's like, that's not a really a big deal. You just have to deal with it. Um, but the thing I've, I was told by people in that world, Marco Bristow uh, of um, 
uh, Access Chicago, the Handicap Advocacy Group. She told me once at a meeting when I couldn't understand a word she was saying, she says, Tom, you have a disability and you should use that word because the more we all use that word and own it, the less scary it is and the more we just become like everybody else. Good advice. As editorial page editor, what will you remember uh, what have been the most impactful editorials? I know that the one I believe had the most impact, and that was the front page editorial endorsing Lori Lightfoot. The timing of it, the placement of it, the wording of it, the the way you wrote it, it was magnificent. And I believe that and the uh, the first charges against Burke, which mentioned Preckwinkle and the $10,000 that he allegedly mu- muscled from the Burger King franchise holder, those two have things tipped the scales for Lori Lightfoot, who was languishing in the sickle digits by, by at that point. What, do, what has been the most impactful editorial for you in your run? Well, yeah, in terms of having immediate impact, I wrote the editorial about Lori Lightfoot, uh, endorsing her for mayor. And, um, and I think it's fair to say that editorial had, had a big uh, impact. It, she was down in the, uh, in the, you know, there were like 14 people running for that job. And she was at the bottom of the list somewhere. And then after that editorial, and what it was, you know, Fran, it's once again, it's just the moment. People were looking for something else. And I don't think we all understood it until that editorial came out and gave them something else. You know, people had a gut feeling they didn't want to vote for Bill Daly. They didn't want to vote for Tony Preckwinkle. And these are not bad people, but people wanted something that wasn't part of the old school thing. And this editorial came out and said, here, consider this person. Um, and, and and I think that's why it works so well, it's just because it hit. And more so than I think we understood, people were looking for that uh, alternative, and we gave it to her. So I think that was a real big one. And then, you know, it's not any one, ed- over the years, it's not any one editorial that I would say I point to. What I figured out is an editorial page is this, you're in it for the long haul. You're in it for the long fight. So, for instance, you don't write a, uh, an editorial about the ridiculous uh, proliferation of guns in our streets, guns. Uh, thinking it's going to make much difference now. But if you keep at it in a fair-minded way, uh, if you keep at it over time, you can sort of change hearts and minds. It changes the sort of the intellectual culture around an issue. The best example is the gay rights movement, gay marriage, which, you know, we were really early as a mainstream newspaper. We were early in supporting that fight. The, the gay press was all over it well before any of us. But among mainstream newspapers, I, I, I can say that sometimes got on it pretty quickly. And, you know, you can look back on that and people would say, well, that was never going to happen. And there are a lot of reasons it happened. But in part, it was just people hammering away at the issue and over time, and it finally happened. The only other thing I would say about that is my strategy as editorial page writer for the most part, is not to preach to the choir. You know, I always say to my colleagues and I say to myself, we have a lot more impact if we figure out where the people who don't agree with us, where they live. If we can find the arguments that are persuasive to them and not just talk down to them or preach to the choir like, you know, MSNBC or something. Um, so I think that's sort of a strategy for an editorial page is to try to find ways to find a bridge to the people who don't already 
<clears throat> excuse me, don't always already agree with you. Tom McNamee, a magnificent career. I wish you only the best in whatever you decide to do and in enjoying the, uh, the rest of your days and whatever it is. And I'm sure we're going to hear from you. But thank you for your service to our newspaper. Thank you for making us better in, a, in a, an array of capacities. Yeah, Fran, and you don't want to hear this. People say it all the time, but working with you. There's just, they're just nothing better. You're the best in town. And, and um, sometimes at parties, people say, who's the best in town? And I say, well, we all know that. It's Fran Spielman. So thanks. I appreciate it. We'll see you all next week. Take care. Bye-bye.